Welcome, everyone, and thanks for joining us for the next episode of the Rocky Mountain Myrex Short Case on Suicide Prevention Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Hoffberg, and today's episode, we will be continuing our series on lethal means safety, and we're really pleased to be joined today by Dr. Mike Anestis, and he is with the Suicide and Emotion Dysregulation Lab at the University of Southern Mississippi. And uh, we're going to zoom in today and talk a lot about his work on firearms and suicide prevention and really uh, let Michael just jump right in. So welcome, Mike. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. So just uh, as we always do, could you give us a little bit on yourself and your background and also, you know, your connection to this topic and why you're pursuing this research? Yeah, sure. Um, So I went to graduate school at Florida State University and trained as a suicide researcher with Thomas Joyner, which was what brought me into uh, suicide prevention field overall. Um, but mostly my work the last handful of years has been focused on firearms, which is, you know, why I'm, why I'm here today chatting with you. And that really comes from where I live now. Uh, I live in Southern Mississippi and, and they say you can get further South, but not deeper South. So I live in an environment uh, where guns are very prevalent and gun suicide is very prevalent. Um, and I sort of found myself sitting in my office uh, one day feeling a little bit agitated about that and, and decided that um, I have this sort of nerdy skill set that I might be able to leverage to do some good, hopefully, in the world. Um, and so my graduate students and I have really devoted the last handful of years to better understanding what the role of firearms is in suicide and, and what we can do about it. Great. And yeah, I'm so excited to really dive into this topic with you and learn more. It's great to have you on the show today. So I wanted to start off uh, just kind of orienting our listeners and making sure everybody understands uh, the topic a bit. And so really just going over some of the uh, the fundamentals about what we know about the relationship between firearm access and also um, how star- storage of firearms and the risk of suicide are related. And um, at least for now, I really want to focus on what's going on here in the United States in America. Sure. So in the United States, the story of suicide really is a story about firearms, um, which might sound like an extreme statement, but I think the numbers back that up. Uh, So 2016, up until this morning, actually, was the most recent year for which we had official data. And in that year, just under 45,000 folks died by suicide, and 51% of those deaths were by firearms. Um, And that's an astounding number in its own right, but it's even more astounding when you realize that firearms are used in less than 5% of all suicide attempts. So what we know is that in the United States, people almost never use firearms to attempt suicide, and yet more often than not, when someone dies by suicide, they use the gun. Um, and what that tells us is a couple of things, but, but the most important is just that the method itself is so lethal in a way that stands out relative to other methods. And so we know that 85 to 95% of all suicide attempts that involve a firearm result in death. Um, and that might not sound all that important until you compare that to other methods. And by far the most common method of attempt in the United States is intentional overdose, but only two to 3% of those attempts result in death. And so with the most common method, people almost never die. With one of the least common methods, people almost always die. Because of that, firearms represent the norm of American suicide. And that's why I say the story of American suicide is a story about firearms. Um, and, and, to put that in sort of one level further of context, what we know is that 75% of folks who survive an attempt never go on to attempt again, and 90% don't go on to die. And so what that tells us is if you have a second chance, there's a really good possibility that you're, you're never going to die by suicide, that, that you've made it through this. Uh, but folks who use firearms don't get that second chance. And so in terms of what we know about the relationship between firearms and suicide, we know that from decades of research that firearm ownership and access is associated with death by suicide. And this is true even when you are accounting for all the other things that people might say you should focus on instead. So whether it's mental illness or poverty or loneliness or access to care or religiosity or where you live, none of those things wipe away the relationship. They're all important too. The argument isn't that they don't matter. Let's only talk about the guns. Um, But the idea is that the firearm itself appears to have its own unique and robust relationship. And you asked about storage. And what we know about that is it takes this relationship I was just talking about and it amps it up. So once there's a firearm in the home, risk goes up as much as five times relative to homes without a firearm. But if that firearm stored unsafely, that risk goes up even higher. So David Brent published a study in 2001, showing that amongst firearm owners, the ones who store the firearms unsafely were nine times 
more likely to die by suicide. And so what I mean by unsafely is going to vary, but the general idea is it involves a combination of factors, like is the firearm stored unloaded and separate from ammunition? Is it stored in a secure location like a gun safe or a lockbox? And are you using some sort of locking device like a trigger lock or a cable lock? And some might say you need all of those. Some might say you need one or two of them. There's not really a clear definition there. But the idea is the safer the storage, the lower the risk. But even the most safely stored firearm is substantially more dangerous than one that's absent altogether. Thanks so much for that. I mean, you really said uh, just a a ton, and I want to break it down a little bit, especially around that last piece about the relationship between having that firearm access and the risk of suicide, because I think many people might get confused or misinterpret that as meaning that firearms cause suicide or suicide risk. And uh, I want to be clear that 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 isn't what you're saying. So can you just uh, expand on that a little bit? Absolutely. And and The data on that are just as clear as the data I was talking to you about a moment ago. There's decades of research showing that firearm ownership is not associated with suicidal thoughts. And so what that tells us is that owning a gun doesn't make someone who's otherwise happy and healthy suddenly become suicidal. That's just not the role of firearms in suicide. What they do is they make suicidal folks far more likely to die. And the problem is that we're not always particularly good at knowing who's suicidal. Uh, for a variety of reasons. And so you end up with this situation where uh, ownership is associated with death in large part because we can't pick out which are the owners who are suffering and which are the ones who aren't. But firearms definitely are not causing folks to become suicidal. And living in Mississippi, I have to spend a lot of time being very clear and upfront. Every talk that I give on this topic, I start off with sort of a disclaimer saying, here are some things I'm not here to do. And the first thing I say is I'm not here to vilify guns and gun owners. I certainly have strong opinions, but it's important that we not uh, misappropriate the data and create the impression that guns cause suicide because they don't. And that's going to make an already difficult conversation impossible to have. And so I think it's important that folks really understand that firearms are an extremely important part of suicide risk in America but they're not a part of all aspects of risk. They don't make people suicidal. We're certainly going to circle back to uh, the important comment you just made about making sure that we're bringing firearm owners into the conversation and, and part of the, part of the uh, approach to suicide prevention in this area. I also wanted to kind of get a sense of, you know, we know that firearms are involved in about half of suicide deaths in America. And how common is firearm ownership in America? What do we know about that area? You know, it's tough to give an exact number on that because we don't track that on a systematic basis, right? There's no uh, mandatory registry of firearms in America, and there's, in fact, a lot of resistance to uh, any form of legislation for fear that that type of movement may lead to us having a registry of who owns firearms. But what we can lean on are things like epidemiological studies from folks like the Pew Research Center. And the most recent data I've seen from those guys is that about 30% of Americans own a gun. I see. So, again, I think all of these uh, sort of statistics and and background are helping us paint the picture of why talking about lethal means safety and talking about firearm suicide is so important when we want to make a dent in suicide. And so um, can you just tie that all together for us and tell us why you think gun safety is really, in some ways, the most valuable suicide prevention tool we have? Sure. Um, I think that there's a number of reasons it's extremely important, but the most important reason to me stems from what I think is the scariest, but maybe one of the most important studies I've ever seen uh, by Joe Franklin at Florida State, who showed that um, we are no better now at prospectively predicting death by suicide than we were in the 1950s, or essentially a little bit better than a coin flip. And the problem with that I mean, there's no number of problems with that, but the biggest problem with that is that most of our suicide prevention tools are about finding the people who are miserable and helping them with their misery. And and that's admirable, and we should do even more of it than we do now, so I'm certainly not advocating against that. But that tells us that it's not working, right? So all of our tools are about understanding who's miserable and who's at risk, and then using that to make them less miserable and prevent their death by suicide, and yet our suicide rate's going up, and we're not getting any better at actually predicting risk. And so gun safety is vital because it doesn't rely on us knowing who's at risk. It doesn't rely on us making this prediction that we've thus far failed to be able to make with any sort of reliability. 
Um, and so what gun safety allows us to do is say, let's make suicide more difficult for everyone, regardless of whether you're at risk or regardless of whether or not I know you're at risk. Why don't I make it so that it's less likely that your suicidal thoughts can turn into lethal suicidal behavior? And again, in any talk I give about this topic, I always have a slide up that emphasizes the point that the vast majority of folks who are thinking about suicide never go on to attempt. And the vast majority of those who attempt never go on to die. And it isn't how bad they want to. It isn't how serious they are about it. It isn't how long they've been suffering. None of those factors tell us who's going to make that transition. Um, and so we need tools that are essentially going to prevent that transition from everyone because we don't know who are the folks we need to target the most. I certainly hope we get better at that sort of precision targeting. Um, but in the meantime, I don't want to make the assumption that we will. Gun safety gets around that by simply saying, whoever you are, if you are safe with your firearm, if you happen to have suicidal thoughts, even severe ones with a plan, you are going to be less likely to die. I feel like uh, this is an emerging topic, and so folks may be new to the idea of mean safety. Um, so have there been other examples in public health where we've sort of approached issues uh, with a similar sort of um, orientation? Yeah, sure. And when we're talking about mean safety, we're talking about, you know, outside of the context of suicide, we're talking about taking something that causes an outcome you don't want and making it less likely to cause an outcome. So within suicide, that means making a method less deadly or less accessible for an attempt. But outside of suicide, we've seen mean safety applied to a range of problems. And so one example would be HIV and AIDS. Um, if you go back to the early 90s, the rate of new HIV infections and the rate of HIV deaths were substantially higher than they are now. And I remember being a kid and watching Magic Johnson give his press conference and thinking, oh my gosh, my, one of my heroes is going to die. I mean, obviously he hasn't. We've gotten a lot better at this problem. And one of the ways we have is, is we've addressed one of the most common methods for contracting HIV, which was intravenous drug use with dirty needles or tainted needles. And so folks created needle exchange programs. And those programs did a number of things. I don't want to oversimplify them, but one of the primary things that they did was essentially pull dirty needles out of the market and flood the market with clean needles. Now, one of the things folks were afraid of with those is that they would essentially be us condoning intravenous drug use and people would do it more as a sort of ancillary benefit, actually, in places where they put those programs in, intravenous drug use went down. But more relevant to this conversation, rates of HIV infection cratered in those areas because they took the most common method of obtaining the virus, which is tainted needles, and made them less accessible. They made the method less likely to cause the outcome by making sure that needles were clean. Certainly, we would rather people just not use intravenous drugs. But in the meantime, if we assume that they are, how can we make it safer so we don't get the worst outcome possible, which is death through HIV or one of the worst outcomes possible, that being one of the paths to death? So that's one example. Another example would be lung cancer. Lung cancer still occurs far more often than suicide. Um, so it's still a problem we need to address. But in the past couple of decades, smoking, the most common uh, cause of lung cancer infections, um, has become less prominent. And there's a number of ways we've done that. But one of the ways we've sort of demonstrated mean safety is through taxing cigarettes a lot, making them more expensive, right? And so this isn't me advocating for taxes, but it's to say, if you make the method less accessible by making it more expensive, fewer people use it. If fewer people use it, fewer people get the negative outcome, in this case, lung cancer. But I think the most relevant example for suicide prevention in firearms is drunk driving. Uh, if you go back to the early 80s, the rate of auto fatality was much higher than it is now. In fact, the, the number of auto fatalities was even higher than it is now, even though our population is higher now than it was then. And about 60% of all auto fatalities directly involved alcohol use. We were incredibly permissive about it. Um, if you said, let me hold your keys, you're more likely to get punched than to get the keys. And the person's friends were more likely to support the decision to punch you. But now sort of getting a designated driver and not driving drunk has become more of a moral imperative. And we've done a number of things, but we've, we've made the method less likely to occur by making it less culturally acceptable. And so we had the ad council put out ads like uh, drinking and driving can kill a friendship. Uh, friends don't let friends drive drunk and, and buzz driving is drunk driving. And they've had these ads placed in high visibility locations like 
the Super Bowl. And in doing so, they saturated the market with a message that says maybe the safer behavior um, is to have a drunk driver. So it isn't alcohol is bad, don't drink. It's that when you are drinking, that might not be the time to drive. And so the corollary in suicide prevention would be when you're feeling depressed, when you're going through something difficult, that might be the time to find a legal way to let your buddy or law enforcement or a gun shop keep your gun for a little bit, and then you get it back when you're feeling better. So there are parallels from these other public health phenomena where you can say, what can we do about the most common method that's causing the outcome and make it less likely to do that, which we've also done in suicide with other methods in other countries. Mm, that's very helpful. I mean, would you like to expand a little bit about um, how that's been done with suicide in other countries? Absolutely. Um, in the mid-50s in the UK, the most common method of death by suicide was sticking your head in the oven, which when I tell folks in audiences about that now, they sort of are astounded by it, but it was extremely common. And it wasn't that people were burning themselves to death. They were inhaling toxic gas, uh, the carbon monoxide levels in domestic gas in the UK was extremely high. And so the government thought at one point, hey, maybe we shouldn't be pumping so much toxic gas into people's homes, and they detoxified it. And the rate of death by suicide using that method went down by 80 to 90 percent. But what's more important is the overall suicide rate in the country went down by 30 to 40 percent. And so by taking the most common lethal method and making it less likely to cause the outcome, people didn't just find another way. They stopped dying. If you look at Sri Lanka, they were recently having a real problem with suicide by extremely lethal forms of pesticide. And they did a bunch of things. They built lock boxes on farms to give people a way to store it more safely. But they also just banned some of the most lethal, uh, most lethal pesticides. And the overall suicide rate in Sri Lanka dropped by 50%. But the most relevant example to the conversation you and I are having today is the Israeli Defense Force. And so they have mandatory military service for young adults. And they noticed in the early part of this century that young adults were going home on the weekends and shooting themselves with their service weapons. And so they just changed a policy. And they said, you know what, you can no longer do that. You lock your service weapon up in the armory when you go home for weekends or holiday. And that's all there is to it. And as a result, there was a 40% drop in the suicide rate amongst young adults in the Israeli Defense Force. So again, they weren't dying on other days. They weren't dying with other methods. They just weren't dying. And so when they take the most common form of suicide death in a specific area and the most highly lethal form of suicide death in a specific area, and they make it less deadly or less accessible, people die less often. What that tells us is that focusing on the method works, but also that what works in one location isn't necessarily going to be the best answer for another location. Thank you. Yeah, very illuminating. And I, I like that you keep emphasizing this, this message that making an extremely lethal or deadly method less common or less available uh, does lower deaths or outcomes uh, by that method. And, and I think that's really the fundamental um, meaning of mean safety and especially lethal mean safety and suicide prevention. So I want to turn now to a recent article that uh, you were featured in, and this was in the American Psychological Association's Monitor publication. And this article was called, Can Making Suicide More Difficult Save Lives? And of course, this uh, relates very much to what we're talking about today. I wanted to dive into this article a little bit with you. Also help us shape the conversation around um, firearm deaths, because I think uh, a lot of times what we hear about with firearm deaths are mass shootings, what we, uh, which are, of course, very unfortunate and tragic. Um, but we also uh, maybe don't get the media attention and the public attention around firearm suicide that we should. And I think this helps people understand more why this issue is so important. So could you talk us through that? Sure. I was grateful, actually, that APA was willing to put this topic in such a prominent spot. Um, I think that as you were alluding to, in your question, it's just something people don't like to talk about. And I think in large part, that's because suicide is uncomfortable to talk about for a lot of folks, but also because the population in general, I think, just doesn't understand or know about the scope of the problem. And so in the United States, almost two out of every three gun deaths is a suicide death. And as I said earlier, more than half of the suicide deaths 
our gun debts. And so these these two stories of suicide and, and gun violence are intertwined with one another in a way that, that we have been underemphasizing tragically um, and in a way that makes us far less able to tackle the problem. Um, as you said, we talk mostly about mass shootings, and, and I'm certainly not going to discourage us from doing that. I think that those are tragedies that deserve every bit of our attention, and, and those lives lost deserve um, all the thoughts we've been giving to them. But those types of events represent a very small minority of gun deaths in the United States. And so it seems to me that if we want to prevent gun deaths, if we want to to bend the curve on the rate at which people are dying uh, at the hands of a gun, we have to focus on the way that that's happening most often. And it's not even close. There are more firearm suicide deaths than there are homicides by all methods combined. Firearm suicide death on its own could be in the top 15 causes of death in the United States. So if we want to bend the curve on gun violence, it has to be a focus primarily on suicide. Suicide can't be a footnote. It can't be something that people sometimes include in the conversation. It has to be the conversation. And so by all means, people can talk about mass shootings and and homicides in general or accidental deaths, and they should, and we should honor those victims. Um, But we need to honor the victims of suicide as well. And we need to focus our attention on the most common form of gun death. And so that APA monitor article gave me a chance and my graduate students a chance to talk about the work that we're doing and why we think that there are actually a lot of solutions that exist today that are actually very palatable to gun owners um, that just aren't being used. But if we had the the will and the way to implement them broadly uh, and effectively, I think that we would save thousands of American lives every single year. I think that it is the single greatest tool we have at our disposal to save lives um, and it's just sort of astounding to me how we can rally around not eating romaine lettuce so effectively a couple of weeks ago, but we can't look at 25,000 Americans dying from firearm suicide and do much of anything about it. Yeah, that's just so profound. I mean, the, I remember the first time I sort of understood the the relationship or the uh, proportion of firearm deaths that are suicides, and I, I was really just, my jaw dropped. I didn't realize the extent of the issue. And I think a lot of it is because um, we don't talk about it enough. And um, I think this is a great transition around talking about maybe why we don't talk about it enough or what the hesitation is around approaching the issue. In many cases, I understand that it's because academics and many of the researchers are not firearm owners, and it's a very difficult uh, topic to approach. So um, can you walk us through that and maybe also some solutions to that? Sure. I, I really do think that's part, obviously not the entirety of the problem, but I think that's a big part of it is that there's a almost a lack of cultural competence and, and knowledge, which isn't a criticism of, of researchers. People come from different places and different cultures with different experiences and different thoughts and views on, on firearms. And again, I have very strong thoughts on them. Um, but I think that sometimes when we feel uncomfortable or ignorant about something, especially when we maybe are accustomed to trying to frame ourselves as experts on on an area, we tend to avoid the topic. And a lot of academics or physicians or healthcare providers in general don't own firearms and don't know much about them. And so if that's the case, it's hard to then have a conversation with a firearm owner about what they should do because it's hard to even speak competently about how firearms work or know what type of firearm someone has or what the different safety options are and what they cost and how you use them. And no one likes to sound like an idiot. Um, and when you're talking about suicide prevention and you're thinking about this from the perspective of, you know, this person's at, at high risk and you don't feel like you can competently speak about what they're supposed to do, you, you might be less inclined to talk about it. But I think even going beyond that, there's also fear of offending folks. There's, a, you know, fear of being political. Uh, there's researchers who don't do much, spend much time on this also because there just hasn't been much funding. There's been a couple of new sort of resources that have come online or are about to come online that are focused on funding gun violence research. Um, But there has also been about a quarter of a century during which the CDC, uh, due to successful lobbying by the NRA, has been unable to fund gun violence research. And so there's been a ton of obstacles. In terms of solutions, though, there are some things anybody can do, and some of these are simple and some of them are harder. 
Um, the simplest thing someone can do in order to feel more competent is just ask some questions, read a little bit about it, or do what I did. I took my entire team uh, to a gun range and had a concealed carry permit educator teach us. So we each had a little bit of time on the range, and we sat and listened and learned about these are different types of firearms, and this is how they work. These are these different types of locks, and these are how they work. And this is what it feels like to fire a firearm. And it lets us come in and credibly speak, but also do it in a way where you aren't pretending to be something else. So I'll tell people all the time, look, I do not have the most experience with firearms in the room. I may have the least, but I don't have zero. I'm going to sort of come at this from the most educated place I can and try to understand more. But if you understand zero and you've made no effort to understand, um, you're going to be uncomfortable talking about it, and the people aren't going to take you seriously because it doesn't seem like you made much of an effort to see the world through their eyes. Um, so the simplest thing is just learn, get some experience. The more complex things people can do is collect some data. Um, there are basic questions that haven't been asked. Um, I look at a lot of my colleagues in suicide prevention who are using far more sophisticated methodology than I am, and they're asking these very in-depth questions. And I'm sitting here thinking, I have to ask the most basic questions because nobody's doing gun violence research, certainly not many people in the space of psychology where I live. Um, and so ask these questions, advance our field further along so we can get better at this. That's the other thing we can do is people can increase their competence by simply gathering data and using it themselves or sharing it with others um, so that they, again, can feel like they can speak about this credibly, learn about this uh, sufficiently, and then apply it in a way that's meaningful to their field, whether they're an educator, a practitioner, a researcher, or whatever. Excellent. Yeah, really good, um, really good thoughts and, and advice there and some very practical steps people can do or think about uh, as they uh, dive and approach this issue a little bit more informed from a little bit more of an informed perspective. Given that uh, we both do research with military and veterans, I wanted to uh, zoom in a little bit more on some of the work you're doing with the Mississippi National Guard and also um, have you tell us a little bit about what we know about the extent of firearm suicide among veterans and military personnel and, um, you know, again, emphasizing why this is even a more poignant topic among our service members. Yeah. So, you know, I mentioned earlier that I, I live and work in Mississippi. And one of the things I like to point out about Mississippi is that, you know, whereas in most of the country, about half of the suicide deaths that result from firearms in Mississippi, it's 70 percent. And to me, that stands out as like an astoundingly high number. But what's sort of heartbreaking is that that number is not all that different from the number in military and veteran populations, where it's about two out of every three suicide deaths result from firearms. So it's important to talk about the military and veterans because it's an even bigger problem with them than it is amongst civilians, which isn't to diminish the issue, but within civilians, but it's to highlight that in this this particular population, the problem is even more severe. And, and there's a number of reasons why that could be the case. Demographically, you have a far more male-heavy population amongst military and veterans, and men are more likely to own firearms and to die by suicide using a firearm. So just like the elevated military suicide rate, it's in some ways explained by the fact that you've got a lot of men in the military. The firearm rate is as well. But female service members are also more likely to die by firearm than are civilian females. And so that tells us that it's not just about demographics. There's something about military life that would explain that. And to me, I think the explanation is what folks refer to as the capability for suicide. Um, and that can mean a number of things. It's a construct we're still working to, to define properly and certainly to measure effectively. But what we all kind of agree on, whether you're talking about joiners in a personal theory of suicide or Klonsky May's three-step theory of suicide, is that not everybody who wants to die is capable of dying by suicide. And that capability includes a number of things, but some of them are pain tolerance, fearlessness about death and bodily harm, but also access to and comfort with lethal means. And if you think about the military, they are, as they should be, trained to be proficient users of firearms. And so on the one hand, you have this voluntary service where people are opting in, which may already draw from a population more likely to own and be comfortable with firearms. But on the other hand, you also have 
the experience, at least through basic training for those who never go on to use a firearm with any regularity in their actual service career, at least in basic training, you're going to get uh, a level of aptitude in how to use firearms. And in doing so, you are making people have greater access and comfort with lethal means, which means you're making them more capable of dying should they want to. And so a study that that Craig Bryan and I put out a couple of years ago, or I guess more than that now somehow, but we found that, that suicide attempts in the military are far more likely to, to result in death than are suicide attempts among civilians. And a big part of that was the choice of method. It's that they are more likely to use a firearm. And firearms aren't more lethal in the military. They're just more frequently used. And so when you talk about this topic, you need to focus on the military a good deal because they have greater risk. They're more, they have a greater propensity to use this method. And because of that, their suicide rate shoots up. It goes up higher and they're at higher risk. And again, with all the things we were saying before about it's really hard to know who's at risk. That's particularly true amongst the military who often are avoidant of mental health care and, and hesitant to disclose suicidal thoughts if they have them. And so a tool like mean safety can work around that to an extent by implementing a safety procedure where regardless of whether or not I know you're at risk, you are less able, less capable of acting on thoughts you may have. Uh, that's very helpful. And um, I'd like to turn and talk a little bit about a research study that you have in progress that's uh, looking into this issue and actually an intervention to approach this issue. And I understand the project is called uh, Project Safeguard, and it's underway with the Mississippi National Guard. Can you tell us what you all are trying to do in that project? Sure. So Project Safeguard is a randomized controlled trial funded by the Department of Defense through the Military Suicide Research Consortium. And what we're trying to do is really sort of activate those exact principles I was just talking about. So the idea behind this whole project is that service members often avoid uh, disclosing their suicidal thoughts when they're in treatment and, in fact, often avoid treatment altogether. So we first know they're at risk for suicide when they die by suicide. And that's quite often on their first attempt with their own personally owned firearm. And so we wanted to create a primary prevention trial, a trial that says, okay, if you're suicidal, you can come in. But if you're not suicidal, you can also come in. This isn't about saying who's acutely at risk and trying to make that risk go down. It's about saying let's lower risk for everybody. And so we are working with the Mississippi National Guard. And we chose the National Guard because they often have one of, if not the highest suicide rates across the military. Uh, for a variety of reasons, we don't certainly know for sure, but a big part of it being that they live sort of partly in both worlds and not fully in either in terms of civilian and military life. And so we're working with Mississippi National Guard, and folks are coming in, and they're randomized to one of four conditions. In one condition, they have a 15 to 20-minute conversation with us based on motivational interviewing principles where we talk to them about firearm safety. Um, are, what are your current firearm storage practices and how open might you be to trying some different things in general and, and also developing a plan for what you might do if you or someone you love uh, develops risk for suicide. Some folks are randomized also to get that same conversation but also to get free cable locks for each of their firearms. There are two other arms of the study. Some folks are randomized to get our control condition, so a 15-20 minute motivational interviewing conversation but just about sort of health principles, so stress management or sleep or diet or exercise. And then the last group gets that same sort of health conversation, but also the cable locks. And so we bring the folks in at baseline and we give them whatever intervention that they're randomized to. And then we talk to them again at three and six months post baseline. And the goal, our hope, is that with a single 15, 20 minute interaction, we might be able to get folks to change their firearm storage behavior and in doing so, lower their risk for suicide should suicidal thoughts ever emerge. Um, and if we do this successfully, um, what I think we have, at least in the military, is a scalable tool because the goal is to make this something that can be done on a peer-to-peer -peer basis. And so you could roll it into already existing infrastructure, whether that be basic training or within the National Guard annual training, right? There are opportunities where folks come in and you, again, much like we did with drunk driving, try to change the cultural norm so that the idea is that a, a, a strong service member, a smart service member, 
stores their firearms safely and stays alive. Um, and so I think we have a tool that is short. It's a single episode, a single uh, session. It could be done on a peer-to-peer basis and could be done within the military community. So the credibility uh, of the message is there. Um, now, we're very early in the trial. We're going to eventually have a little over 230 participants. Um, by the end of this year, which is just our first year, we'll be right around 70 folks. So we've got a couple of years left in this trial before we'll have our our full sample. Um, and we're certainly not going to peek at the actual outcome data of storage behavior. But what I can say so far anecdotally is that um, folks aren't dropping out of the study and they are saying that they would recommend it to others. So it seems palatable, right? We can have this conversation with a very conservative gun-owning military population and not offend anyone. Uh, I can tell you with certainty that immediately after the intervention, when we asked them some of the same questions we asked right before, the folks who talked about firearm safety with us are much more open to changing their behavior in the future compared to the folks who didn't talk about firearms. So, so something about the conversation is at least changing what they say they're willing to do. And then anecdotally, talking to folks who've come back at three and six months so far, um, they're telling us stories of changing their behavior. Now, whether that's going to bear out in the numbers that it it made as much of an impact as, as we hope. I won't know until the trial's done, right? So what we have so far seems to be a very palatable and promising intervention that we still don't know how well it works. Um, but man, if it does, I think we've got something that we could really roll with and that if you can do it in this population, you could probably do it in just about any firearm owning population. Yeah, very fascinating work. And uh, yeah, we're, we're looking forward to hearing the results and, you know, of course, extending the invitation to have you come back on and, and continue this uh, conversation. And I, I just want to mention, I really appreciate the approach of, like you mentioned, this idea of primary prevention of really offering this intervention to all people, not uh, not necessarily those that have been previously identified at risk. And I really think that aligns well with this uh, public health approach that we're looking to work towards in suicide prevention. Yeah, I, I was on a panel on gun violence prevention as a as a suicide focus at a conference with Craig Bryan a couple of weeks ago. And as he so often does, I thought he said it best. He pointed out, you know, when we're trying to prevent other phenomena, we don't wait until the worst moment. You don't wait till you have the flu to be like, you know, you probably should do something about that, right? We get towards flu season and say, hey, go get your flu shot, everybody. Um, and, and so I think that we haven't really taken that approach with suicide, certainly not from the firearm angle until recently. And I, I think it's an extremely promising avenue because it, again, it gets around a lot of our weaknesses. It's extremely inclusive and it parallels what we've done successfully with so many other problems in our country. Great. Um, so I want to shift gears a little bit. You know, I have you on the show today. I know we are um, really covering a lot of ground, but I think um, this stuff is so important that I just want to uh, keep going with you. And um, I understand that you are the co-chair of the Firearms Committee, which is part of the American Association of Suicidology. And I wanted to hear about your role within that committee and sort of why the committee exists and what you all are working towards within AAS. Yeah, this committee and AES's general approach to, to firearms has been things I've been very excited about this past handful of months. So I co-chair the committee with Aaron Dunkerley, who is an attorney based out of California and a suicide law survivor um, who's been a sort of passionate advocate uh, on this topic for years. And we've got a committee that currently has between 30 and 40 members um, from a really diverse set of backgrounds. So we have sort of research nerds like myself from various fields. We have folks who are uh, clinicians. We have folks in the VA system. We have folks who are uh, loss survivors. We have folks who are attempt survivors. We have advocates. And so we have a real sort of broad consortium of perspectives. And on the one hand, that can be chaotic. So we've had some conference calls that I've dialed back a little bit because uh, you get 30 or 40 people passionate about a topic from different perspectives and it, it becomes uh, a little bit hard to be productive in the conversations. But what we're trying to do is figure out ways to effectively channel that energy. It may be more email focused, uh, but we're trying to sort of take a, a growing uh, 
energy to do something active and tangible on this topic and leverage that to actually get outcomes. And we're doing that to the vehicle of AAS, who I think has been extremely forward thinking um, on this topic, putting out uh, or, you know, allowing me to be a part of crafting uh, position statements on the role of firearms and what we can do about it. Um, and so AAS has given us pretty free reign to, to take a strong stance um, on this issue and to promote a wide range of, of possible ways to help and, and to bend the curve on the issue. Uh, so it's still, you know, the committee, I think if you ask me how have we done in our first year, I'd say that we've, we've given it a good effort. I don't, I don't know if we've accomplished as much as we want to. Our goals are probably too big regardless of how successful we are, but we're still trying to figure out how to successfully harness the energy productively. But I like that it exists. You know, a year ago, it wasn't even a thing that existed, and the policy statement wasn't out. Um, and so everything that's in place right now is is better than it was in 2017. And, and that leaves me hopeful. Obviously, there's a lot that needs to be done, but it seems like there's more and more people doing it and more and more organizations willing to vocally support those kinds of efforts. Yeah, that's really encouraging. And, and like you mentioned, it's a start. It's, it's got a, a lot of potential. And I also you know, look forward to seeing where that goes. Um, you mentioned that you were part of uh, a position statement that AES took on firearm safety and the role of firearms in suicide. And I was wondering, uh, why do you think it's important that a, an organization uh, with such national reach as AAS uh, go ahead and take a position on sort of a controversial topic such as firearms and lethal means I, safety? I think it's vital because in the absence of them taking a position, it isn't a vacuum. It's just someone else's position that everyone else hears. And an organization like AAS is equipped with scientists and advocates and people with so much knowledge about this topic that most folks don't have. And so in a lot of ways, it's my opinion that scientists in general, but organizations like this need to take it upon themselves to not just talk to each other and, and not to shy away from difficult topics, but to use their knowledge to make meaningful contributions to the world. What's the point of your data if your data doesn't translate to something actionable that helps somebody, right? And so I think it's important because AES then lends, credit, lends credibility to the studies that we're conducting and to the knowledge we gain through science. It makes it more accessible to the public, and it gives us a successful counter to folks who have been voicing intuitively appealing, but just factually incorrect views on what gun violence is in this country and what can be done about it. And so you're not gonna find change through silence. You're gonna find change through uh, vocally and accurately talking about what can be done and making sure that you're not just doing it in an emotional argumentative way, but you're doing it in a well thought out data-driven method that offers tangible solutions to folks in a way that reaches across the aisle. And I think that AAS's statement, we certainly tried our best to make it a statement that isn't aimed at alienating anyone or blaming anyone, but saying, look, there are solutions. Some of them are legislative and some of them are not that we can and should be doing um, and that it is our responsibility to pursue and promote these solutions as a community. And it's our nation's responsibility to make this be an active and proportionate part of the conversation on guns in our country. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. And I think um, as we've been talking about throughout today, it's just we, we understand the science and in a lot of ways, it's how do we get this message out in a palatable and in a way that really reaches our audience. And I think um, especially with, with guns, it's such a delicate issue. And so uh, what are some ways that you've helped make sure you get your message correct? And what are some uh, approaches you're taking to really, uh, as you mentioned, sort of go across the aisle and make sure that really this is a, this is a, a not a controversial topic, but one that's really well accepted uh, across the entire community of, of firearm owners and suicide prevention advocates? Well, I've, I've tried a lot of things, and I continue to sort of almost drastically try every uh, method I can. Um, the primary way I do this on a local basis is by talking to folks, um, often in formal settings, but sometimes not, but 
working on perfecting my message and how I talk about it by listening to the perspectives of folks I'm talking to. One of the most illuminating talks I gave actually wasn't local, it was in Asheville, North Carolina, and I was brought in to talk to a group of EMTs who had lost a, a large number of um, their fellow EMTs to suicide over the previous year, almost all of them by firearms. And they came in and I gave one at a time with my standard talk, and I, I talked to one of their leaders at the end. He said, you know, myself and a lot of our guys – I think tuned you out early on because we assumed we were going to get lectured and it wasn't until the end that we heard some things. We thought, Oh, okay, this guy isn't actually saying that you, you really should have let off with that. And so I do now I realized, Oh man, you know, our people are going to make some assumptions about what I'm thinking and what I'm going to say. And then I'm going to listen in, unless I make it clear that's not the case. And so I make sure that I start all of my talks by reaching across the aisle saying, this is who I am to hear what I'm, what I'm not here to do. This is what I am here to do. I'm definitely not here to offend anyone uh, or to make outrageous claims. I'm going to tell you about some stuff that I know, some lessons I think we've learned and some things that we can do to go forward. And those messages don't alienate anybody. I get very positive feedback from people um, and very little negative feedback on these things uh, because it's, I, I think my general mantra is just don't be a jerk about it. Um, and so I think that one of the ways that I'm trying to to get the message across is simply by first hearing people's responses, what I'm saying, but then adapting to make sure that I don't dilute the message. I don't have a message for these guys and a different one for those guys. I have a uniform message that I think can appeal to anybody. So I don't have to change my speech depending on who I'm talking to. Um, I have a way of delivering it that is getting increasingly um, broad in its ability to be heard without offending. So that's one thing. Um, But I also think that what a lot of scientists like myself need to do to get the message out is go outside your comfort zone and diversify the forums in which you talk about what you do. Um, So I wrote this book. I write op-eds all the time. Uh, I talk to as many different groups as I can. If I get an invitation to do something, I almost always accept it because I think, you know what, someone might be listening um, and it might make a difference and maybe it doesn't. But um, I think that people need to be willing to become better at talking about what we do making science relatable and understandable so that people want to hear it and want to follow sort of our recommendations. Um, And they also just need to flood the market with the message. You change cultural norms by getting people to encounter your message more often in a way that's compelling. Um, Again, going back to what we were talking about with, with drunk driving and friends don't let friends drive drunk, we change the cultural norm not by whispering to each other at academic conferences, but because the ad council blasted the message out repeatedly while we're watching football games enough times that people started to think differently about it. And that's certainly an oversimplification of it. But I think that there's a basic principle there, which is that, look, if you want people to think about something and know about it, you need to talk about it enough ways and enough times and enough forums that it registers and it becomes something that they talk about with one another um, and it picks up its own momentum. And so a lot of it has just been a straight up willingness to keep pounding the table and looking for any opportunity to do that. And I'd rather people be tired of hearing me talk about the same thing than have no idea that I want to talk about it. Great. And yeah, I mean, we're so happy to have you on here today to help. Yeah. Keep, keep spreading the message. And, and again, I think uh, it's been very enriching for me to hear you speak. And I hope that, you know, our listeners are, are feeling the same way. Um, I did want to ask you, you know, it seems almost obvious. One of our main audiences for this message is gun owners and the gun owning community. Could you talk about how you are working and especially with your work with some of these coalitions, how you're um, collaborating with uh, gun owners and gun owning organizations around uh, getting this message out there? Sure. I mean, so through AES, we reach out as broadly as we can. A lot of the collaborations have been with groups that you probably wouldn't think of as gun owner uh, uh, associations, so folks like Giffords or Every Town or Brady. Um, most of my collaborations with gun owners have been through the military. Um, I've worked with the Defense Suicide Prevention Office, talking to them about how to uh, decrease the frequency of military suicides. Um, and then again, obviously, with the clinical trial that I'm talking about, and we're trying to, cre- to increase our local presence here in South Mississippi um, in terms of just reaching out and, and changing the culture around and getting folks to, to think about it a little bit differently. Um, so I'm trying to balance local and national work on that. I have you know, larger national goals, but where I live is the epicenter. There aren't many places in the world where guns are owned 
uh, with greater frequency than where I am right now. Um, so wanting to make sure that I don't uh, lose sight of, of the more local goal in, in pursuits of, of broader uh, impact. Great. And um, I think we'd be remiss if we uh, cover this topic without trying to also understand some of the counter arguments to lethal mean safety and also perhaps um, why they are incorrect or what's problematic about them. Um, and so could you take us through that? You know, what is what is some counter arguments for lethal mean safety and how do you how do you respond to those? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up. I, I think that any conversation on this topic that doesn't address these questions is going to be largely ineffective because some of these misperceptions are so common that that folks who are listening right now to us talk are probably having them right now and it's making them be a little suspicious about what we're saying and and maybe they still will be after I finish this answer but hopefully that'll be coming from a more informed place and so the two most common misperceptions that I come across are very reasonable sounding uh, they just don't align with the data. And the first one is that it's what we call mean substitution. It's the idea that if you stop someone from using a specific method and they really want to die, they're just going to find another way. And the second one is that this doesn't make any sense because if you look at countries where firearms are almost non-existent, like Japan and South Korea, you see suicide rates that are much higher. And sort of a corollary of that one that's kind of its third is that so focusing on the gun doesn't make much sense because then you're not talking about what really matters, which is what makes them distressed. And so taking those one at a time, mean substitution sounds very reasonable. If someone really wants to die, what does it matter if they can't use a certain method? They're just going to find another way. But it's so reasonable sounding that scientists have been testing it over and over again for decades and universally find that's not how it works. Uh, I think people don't understand the basic idea that suicide is hard. Uh, we think about it as the easy way out, the coward's way out. It's really difficult. That's why you have to be capable of doing it in the first place. If it was easy, far more miserable people would be dying. And so it's difficult to do that. People don't just find another way. They develop a notion of what suicide is. And if it's hard to use the method they want to use or the method itself is less likely to cause death, well, then they're less likely to die. And you can see that in all the studies that show things like, hey, firearm legislation, like background checks or waiting periods, they're not associated just with lower firearm suicide rates. They're associated with lower overall suicide rates. And the stories we talked about earlier where they detoxified uh, gas in the UK or they got rid of the most lethal pesticides in Sri Lanka, or they had the soldiers not bring their firearms home in the IDF on the weekends. It's not that the method-specific rate went down, the overall rate went down. So if people were just finding another way that wouldn't be the case. They would be substituting that method with something else, and the method-specific rate would go down, but the overall rate would stay stable. That's never how it goes. The overall rate goes down demonstrably and stays down. <clears throat> but even if someone's feeling skeptical of that and they say, I don't believe your numbers, there's a simpler principle in play here, which is that firearms are just far more lethal than any other method. And so if I prevent someone from using a firearm and they say, fine, I'm just going to swallow these pills, they're still far more likely to survive because only two to 3% of overdoses result in death. And again, 75% of folks who survive their attempt to go, don't go on to attempt again. So by preventing them from using the firearm, you still dramatically increase their odds that they'd stay alive. So mean substitution doesn't seem to be a thing, but even if it was a thing, it's still important to prevent people from using a firearm because firearms are so much more lethal than any other method that they might swap in in, in its place. In terms of Japan and South Korea, Again, very reasonable question. If it's all about the guns, why wouldn't the rates be go down? And, and the first answer is because it isn't all about the guns. You and I talked about earlier, guns don't make people suicidal. They make suicidal people more likely to die. And the fact is in different cultures, in different areas of the country, and in different parts of the world, guns are more or less prevalent and more or less a part of what people think of as suicide. And so you know, as an example of this, in the, in the first chapter of my book, I gave an example of a, a soldier who was about to shoot himself with his own weapon and his dog came up and licked him in the face and he sort of snapped out of it. And then he, he ultimately ended up getting a, uh, a gun safe and, and locking up his firearms and, and thriving. And his therapist asked him later on when he's feeling better, uh, whether he'd ever thought about using another method. And he said, no, you know, to me, suicide was always this. I didn't have another thought. Um, 
people have this conception of what it is. And in some places, guns are what that that conception is. In the U.S., that happens to be the case. And so people say, how is the suicide rate so high in Japan or South Korea without firearms? My first response is actually, well, imagine how high it would be if they did have firearms. But the reason is because that was never what suicide was there, right? Mean safety works when the method is highly lethal and highly common in that area. In different places and different groups and different people use different methods. So if we reduced the accessibility of firearms for suicide attempts in the U.S., yeah, I think the suicide rate would go down dramatically. Might there be some other method that eventually takes its place? Could, there, could we have a suicide rate like we have now down the road, even if firearms are out of the equation? Sure, something else could come in. And the answer would be, well, then we need, need safety for that method. And so that ties into the very last sort of idea, the one of like, well, then why are you focusing on the method? Isn't it really about the suffering? You know, something else could eventually come in. Shouldn't we just skip all this and go straight to the suffering? And the answer is no, uh, for a number of reasons. One is because that's what we've already been doing. The whole sort of story of suicide prevention throughout its history has been focusing on the suffering, and it hasn't worked. Uh, so that can't be all that we do. But the answer is also in the data. Mental illness is part, but not the entirety of the story. Uh, loneliness and, and poverty and access to care are important parts, but not the entire part of the story. None of those are particularly good predictors of death. They're predictors of misery. Um, and so, yeah, we should work on those things. But in order to work on them, I need folks to be alive. And so when I say focus on firearms, it doesn't mean ignore mental illness. It means don't ignore firearms. Just like when I say wear your seatbelt, I'm not saying, but go ahead and drink and drive. Talking about one thing doesn't mean ignoring the other. Acknowledging the importance of one thing doesn't mean dismissing the importance of another. You can still talk about and treat depression, but in order to do that effectively, again, I need that person not to be dead. And right now the problem in the United States is people we don't know are in agony are dying and they don't get a second chance because they're dying from, they're attempting to use a gun, which results in that death. And so we have to talk about the method alongside of the misery. We can't just talk about one half of that equation. You and I are talking about firearms because that's what this podcast is about. But if you zoomed out and looked at the larger suicide prevention conversation, you and I are one of the few people talking about firearms. We're the exception, not the norm. The norm is people talking about everything else, despite the fact that two out of three gun deaths are suicides and despite the fact that more than half the suicides are gun deaths. We are the exception. We have to talk about the method because no one's been doing it. So I feel like uh, as we're winding down here, I do want to give you an opportunity to just kind of give us some closing mar remarks and um, sum it all up for folks. And, of course, I want to mention we're going to have links to your work and some, some great opportunities to reach out to us uh, through Twitter or through um, other means. So, of course, we welcome your feedback as, as we wind this podcast down. So uh, take it away, Mike. Sure. In terms of summary messages, I guess what I want to say is that when you hear the news on suicide, it's usually not good news. And the news today is that the 2017 numbers are out and the suicide rate's gone up even further. And now uh, over 47,000 Americans died by suicide in the most recent uh, data. And so that's, that's not an uplifting message. But here is an uplifting message. Despite all of that, what we have is a great tool available and we're not using it. And it doesn't require massive social change in the sense that we have to overturn the Second Amendment or split into two countries of gun owners and non-gun owners. It doesn't require any of that. It just requires us to take a non-emotional look at the data and say, what are some simple changes we can make that will make suicide harder and less common? And so despite all the discouraging numbers, we have an opportunity that we don't often have in public health crises to do some simple things that I think would have a huge, just dramatic and sustainable impact on the problem. And think about what that means, because that means that all these folks who are dying and all the folks who are losing these folks who are dying won't have to go through that if we simply make some basic changes and make this conversation happen in a way that it hasn't typically been happening in this country. Um, and so if there's a, a, a willingness to engage and to inform ourselves and to talk about this, I think that there's plenty of causes for optimism. And like I was saying not that long ago, where we are in 2018 is better than where we were in 2017 in terms of people actively pursuing mean safety and talking about it um, and, and making efforts to advocate for changes. And so I'm hopeful that if we had the same conversation in 2019 or 2020, that, that things will be even better. It's gonna require a commitment 
amongst a larger and more diverse group of people than we have right now. Um, but I think there's every reason to believe that's possible. Yeah, I'm glad you ended on this uh, hopeful and optimistic uh, look ahead. And so, folks, that's going to do it for today. We really appreciate you for joining us for today's podcast. As I mentioned, we will have some links to accompany the podcast as well as um, Dr. Nestis's Twitter handle. So you can feel free to chime in. We really do welcome a conversation around this topic. Uh, take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, share it with others, and give us a review. And until next time, join us for more interviews on important work in suicide prevention and lethal means safety.